0: Hey, listening audience. Welcome back to Noggin Notes. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for downloading. As always, I'm Jake Wiskirchen and I'm your host. And this is the program that aims to educate and enrich your noggin by introducing you to topics pertaining to mental health, of course, but also branching into things like spirituality and finance and personal accountability and overall health-related issues and topics. We're glad to have you show is sponsored by Zephyr Wellness as always. It's uh, it's my company here in Reno, Nevada and Sparks, Nevada. We have two offices. I don't run it myself. I run it with my co-owner, Lindsay Bell. She's awesome. She works a lot behind the scenes with our finances and our operations and stuff while I get to, you know, come out here in the middle of the public and parade my face and my voice around. Uh, so I'm always thankful to her for her efforts. We're also sponsored by Audible. If you're new to, uh, well, I don't know, I guess the internet, (laughs) Uh, let me tell you about Audible. Audible is a bunch of audiobooks and other audio content uh, from news to comedy to entertainment but uh, chiefly books, and it's books that people read into a microphone such as mine, and they just read the book, and you get to listen to that book in audio format, so if you struggle like uh, one of my friends with dyslexia and reading doesn't come easy to you, audiobooks are a great way to learn, uh, to expose yourself to good literature, to immerse yourself in fantasy and adventure, Uh, but also if you spend your time driving, if you're on the road a lot, you can Do an audiobook through your mobile app. Uh, If you get the uh, Audible mobile app, you can uh, put it on your device, your phone, or your tablet, or whatever. And if you have Bluetooth, you can stream it through your speakers in your car, or you can just do the old-school cable connection through the auxiliary port, and you can listen to your audiobooks while you're driving around. If you want to get a free trial to Audible, go to audibletrial.com slash nogginnotes, and you can download what you need to download enroll yourself, you get free 30 days, and you get one uh, free book off of that, and even if you decide not to continue with your membership, you get to keep the audiobook and listen to it whenever you want. So that's audibletrial.com slash Notes. Audible is special because they have a completely unmatched selection of audio content, and they're powered by Amazon, which if you're, uh, unless you've been living under a rock for uh, many, many years, you know Amazon, they're uh, world-renowned. And they have lots of access to lots of content. So, go to audibletrial.com/nagaNotes. Start your free 30-day trial. Support us. Support your audio habits. Support your reading. Support the expansion of your mind. And continue listening to us. Today's podcast is about couples counseling and its comparison to individual counseling, and where we might break off one or the other, or use both uh, concurrently. I will tell you that uh, as a, um, I guess, a spoiler alert. I'm not a big fan of uh doing individual counseling instead of couples counseling. Uh, and and it's uh, honestly if you're in a coupled relationship and somebody's telling you you need to go get individual counseling first, that's a really good indicator that they don't know what they're talking about with regard to their their couples treatment and they haven't been very well educated or schooled on it and, and or they're using a really outmoded way of looking at things. Uh it's very judgmental and um uh, carries a lot of blame when you say, "Hey, you're the problem. Go fix yourself first, then come back to this relationship." So uh, we don't do that, and I go into all the reasons why we don't do that. But um, judgmentalism, outdated thinking, and blaming are not healthy, and they're also very good reasons not to do that type of tactic. So hope you enjoy this. It's just me droning on. There's no guest. Uh, if you like my voice, then you'll enjoy it. If you don't like my voice, just wait till next week, and there will be another one on, and we'll probably have a guest. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Catch you on the flip side. So today I'm going to talk about the differences between couples counseling and individual counseling and float out some some theories and some ideas for you to digest. Uh, I realize that I'm just one guy with some opinions and there are lots of others of us out there who also have opinions. And so I don't want this to come across as some hard and fast rule. Although you will, if you come to Zephyr Wellness, you'll find that we do have some policies in place within the company that, that mirror a lot of what I'm about to say simply because I find it to be best practice based on a lot of the literature that I've read and the research that's floated across my, my consciousness. So, um, if you're a if you're a consumer of our our product, which is t- you know talk therapy or uh, psychotherapy, I, I invite you to, just for the purposes of this podcast, put your mind in the in the framework of a clinician, if you will. And if you're already a clinician, then then you're already there. So think about it just as normal. But uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna trot out some ideas and create some some perspectives that might help understand why we do what we do. Uh, and speaking of why we do what we do, there's a word for that called intentionality. And it basically is, is how we think about what we're about to do so that we have the most control over the potential outcomes. So if I know why I'm going to do something, including you know speaking into this microphone to the audience, then I can reasonably attack it in a way that makes sense to me and, and at least gives me some sort of predictable direction and path. Now, if I'm acting unconsciously, or out of emotional impulse, that's not acting with good intentionality. I lack purpose. Um, it's a lot. You know, I might be largely reflexive to my environment, and I'm not. I'm not. I'm not doing things consciously. I'm not doing them with uh, with a, a, any measure of um, idea about what's what's going to come afterwards. So. When we do what we do, we want to do it with a with a high degree of intentionality as much as possible, and that gives us control over our decision making and our actions. But it also gives us a way to defend why we did what we did in case we're examined on it. So let me lay out a, a scenario for you here. Uh, an individual comes into counseling, says, uh, "You know, I want I want to be treated," and I uh, got this. Uh, we'll just say it's a drinking problem. I drink too much alcohol. So this this person comes in. He's a male, you know, thirty five years old, and. I take him into my office and I say, okay, you know, we'll, we'll call him, uh, I don't know, Mike. Uh, so Mike comes into my office and I say, hey, Mike, you know, I'm Jake. Uh, what brings you in today? And he says, well, I think I'm drinking too much. I say, well, what what makes you think that? And then he lays out a list of reasons. I say, okay, um, tell me about your family. You know, do you have any, do, are you married? Do you have any children? He says, yes, I'm married, a wife of nine years, uh, two kids. Um, my job is, you know, loading Uh, boxes at UPS or whatever it is right in the interview goes on. Now at some point or another it would behoove me to ask Mike if he should invite in his wife to this counseling appointment and here's why. I can continue to treat Mike for his drinking and that's fine he just came in for his drinking problem and we can we can treat that symptom Uh, and I say it's a it's a symptom not a problem even though we refer to it as a drinking problem Uh, because Uh, Like 100 times out of 100, there's something else beneath that that's creating this um, maladaptive, which is a word for not not healthy, this maladaptive coping mechanism, which is called consuming too much alcohol. There's a reason for him doing that. So yeah, I could get him to stop drinking and he could be motivated and um, likely he'll just um, switch to some other coping mechanism. It could be a healthy coping mechanism like reading books or working out or playing softball. Um, but if I don't help him treat his underlying problem, which gives rise to the drinking, he's likely to slip back into another pattern of bad behavior. Uh, and I, I don't mean bad, like shameful and pointing my finger at his face, but like it's just unhealthy. It's not. It's not working for him. So that's not my judgment that it's that's bad or unhealthy or maladaptive. That would be his judgment because he's decided that it's not working for him anymore. That's why he's in counseling, right? So. I would ask him, "Hey, do you want do you want to bring your wife in um, and and have her be a part of this treatment? Because we have a large body of research that suggests that people heal a lot better when they're surrounded by a, a good support system. And what's the number one support system in a married person's life? Well, the spouse, typically. Uh, if it's a healthy functioning relationship, if it's if it's unhealthy and dysfunctional, that's for that's a different topic for another day. But all we're talking about now is presuming that." This, uh, this individual named Mike who wants some, some help with what he thinks is uh, drinking too much, well, and he's going to need some support outside of my once a week or once every two weeks contact for an hour at a time in counseling because... The other 167 hours of the week, there's 168 hours in a week. If you didn't know that, uh, he's, he's going to be doing something else with other people in a different environment than my office. So I can only lend him so much help and insight when we're having our conversations. And we can, you know, we can talk about all sorts of things like uh, his childhood and whether or not he was bullied growing up, and if he's a, ha, ever had any medical complications or surgeries that might, you know, contribute to the problem that led to the drinking. Uh, but ultimately, if he's expected to make a full recovery of this and and move on and and live his life in a happy, robust way that he sees fit, he's gonna need some support beyond just my office. That's why we ask about what the the systems around him look like. Uh, you know how's your job? what kind of friends do you have? what kind of hobbies do you participate in? did you ever serve in the military or um, have any prior experience doing other things besides the current job. So we want to know all, how all these things feed into his life, but chiefly, what's the home look like? Um, if he's returning to a chaotic home all the time and he only drinks in the evenings because the home's full of chaos and the kids are disobedient and uh, his wife maybe is inattentive because she spends too much time on Pinterest or you know whatever, I'm just making stuff up, uh, then, then maybe we need to bring her in and maybe even bring in the kids if they're of an appropriate age and do family counseling but at least start with the couple because the couple is the the most important component of that family uh we call it a dyad D Y A D it's a it's a two two person system within a within a family context so what's called the executive dyad is the the parents and those parents are the executives of that home. Whether or not they want to embrace it or believe it or step into that role is up to them. But but, we're, but it's not debatable. Um, absolutely, the parents run the home. And I know sometimes people will say, well, I don't run my home. My kids run over the top of me. Well, that's a problem because you've inverted the, the power differential. Uh, y- your kids aren't going to get good guidance. There's Boundary issues and structural deficiencies all over the place that that research and theory can speak to, and I'm not again, I'm not going to get into that here. We'll just presume that it's that it's true that if the parents aren't in charge, then bad things happen. So the parents, as the executives of the home, are are largely the most important component of that home. So if they're not on the same page, uh, weird stuff trickles out. So you know everything from uh, lack of emotional connectivity and intimacy to um, children being disobedient to failing grades, bad health, um, all sorts of things. Bills don't get paid, financial arguments, you know, everything. So I would suggest that Mike bring in his wife and make the wife part of his drinking recovery, uh, because she's going to be with him more often than I will. First of all, just as a matter of logistics. But secondly, she's supposed to be his emotional support if he's truly committed to her. So, you know, one of the other follow-up questions might be, do you plan on staying married? And we'll presume that he says yes. And uh, and I'll just take that at face value and say, yeah, he, he does want to stay married. All right. Well, then I would suggest that he brings her in because what we'll end up doing is we'll not only provide a support system for him, but largely she needs to be there in order to Hear why he got to the place where he thinks he's drinking too much and what she can do to uh, contribute to the recovery, ameliorate whatever stress she might be putting on him, uh, maybe pitch in a hand a little bit more often with the kids, uh, get off Pinterest, whatever whatever may be going on. And then as we strengthen that couple's relationship and we grow them closer together and create more intimacy and connectivity with, with the parents, the family home stabilizes. And, and it trickles down. So then the, then the kids start being more responsive. They, be, they become more uh, obedient and respectful and following the rules more often. Their grades will improve. Their, you know, their health will improve. Maybe they'll stop getting bullied on the playground or they'll stop bullying on the playground. So everything starts from the, the head of the household. And, and I'll say that as a collective head, not like one person head of household, but um, the, the two party members of that home. Uh, forgive me if you're a single parent listening to this. I'm not. I'm not denigrating you or chucking you overboard. I'm just. I'm talking about couples counseling and uh, specifically with a with a marriage relationship at this point. I'll get into unmarried couples in a second. So even though Mike walked in my door ostensibly saying, you know, I am an individual and I have a problem with this drinking, um, I I refuse to see him as living life in a vacuum and I think for clinicians we tend to to look at people that way it's like well you know Mike picked up the phone Mike called Mike signed the consent Mike's in front of me Um, the first step to doing good comprehensive individual therapy is to if they're if they're in a a long-standing meaningful committed relationship we need to invite in the other person Um, if for nothing else it grows those people closer together and provides a support system for the person who's struggling now uh shifting gears a little bit, let's pretend a couple comes in and this this couple um will be unmarried for for our purposes here. It doesn't really matter. I'm just trying to throw some diversity and variety into the into the ears of the listening audience so this couple comes in and we'll call them uh what are we gonna call them Jake and Heather I'll take my my wife's name and my own so because that's easy and i'm I'm lazy and I'm not very creative <laughs> so um so Jake and Heather come into uh my office and we sit them down, and, and they're unmarried, uh, but they've been dating for um, six years, and they live together, uh, so they're cohabiting. In um, and they and they don't have any kids, but they come in for couples counseling, and they're struggling with communication issues, like every couple that presents in couples counseling. We well, we'll we just want to communicate better, okay? Uh, and then through the course of the interview, I ask them a series of questions uh, to probe into their into their life presently, as well as their individual you know growing up lives and so forth. And we find out that um, they both bring in a you know a collective set of baggage together, and they're they're kind of they're kind of aware of that because they've had ch- chats and conversations about it. Um, and at some point, maybe uh, maybe Jake says, "You know what? I'm I'm starting to think that maybe I just need to deal with my own stuff first, and then and then we can start couples counseling later." And I would put a stop sign up. I don't have an actual stop sign, but I'm thinking about getting one because it's it's a good uh, visual visual tool. Uh, and I would say, stop. No, we're not doing that. Um, and here's why. So if if Jake really wants to go through his, uh, in, air quotes, individual stuff individually, he can do it in front of Heather. He's committed to her. They're in this for the long haul. The marriage component is really quite irrelevant. That's just some stamp of approval from the state that, that these days, honestly, is like more disposable than it is um, retainable anyway. So I don't get too wrapped up in the marriage thing. Although I will issue a disclaimer, as a marriage and family therapist by license, I'm not really interested in helping people get divorced. Uh, I'm more interested in helping people stay together because I believe that they came together for a reason, and uh, those reasons probably still exist. They just can't see them. So we'll set that footnote aside and come back to the to the little vignette that I'm presenting. So I tell Jake, I say, "Hey, look, man, I think that you're better off addressing this stuff in this room." And I'll talk to you like you're an individual, but Heather needs to be here and watch this go down because she needs to understand how you got to where you are because it's absolutely interfering with your ability to communicate as a couple. And then maybe, hopefully, Jake and I have a, a good rapport, probably because we have the same name, <laughs> but uh, but he goes, all right, I believe, I believe what you're saying is true. However, I'm scared. I'm scared to let her see... All the, the warts and the, and the disfigurations in my, in my inner psyche and in my, in my mind and in my heart and all the scars that I've accumulated over time. I'm just scared to let her see that. Uh, and then I'll ask, well, what what, what scares you? Uh, if you've listened to this podcast much, you know that, that fear is an emotion that has a function and that function tells us that there's a threat or a danger. And he'll say, "I don't know. There's no real threat. There's no nothing's going to you know physically hurt me." I said, "Well, okay. Well, what's the fear then? Is it that you're just going to be exposed and be vulnerable, and you're not used to that because your upbringing taught you to be hard and walled off?" And he'll probably say something like, "Yes." Uh, <laughs> that sounds familiar because uh, this is this is often the the pattern that plays out in these couples sessions when I invite one of one half of the couple to share intimate details of their struggles in front of the the significant other. They get scared, they clam up, and, and with good reason. It's very, very challenging to leave yourself exposed and not know that you're going to be kept safe. And I can't make any guarantees for for his partner, Heather, that she's going to be welcoming and warm. But that's how you have to do it. That's how trust is established. You have to start with somewhere. You can't just magically make it appear. And that that start somewhere is petrifying oftentimes. It's full of fear and terror. Why? Why? Well, what's the harm that could befall somebody who trusts and then has that trust violated? Let's say Jake uh, shares some deep, dark secret from his past, um, you know, maybe even that predated uh, his relationship with Heather, and she goes, oh my God, I didn't know that about you. Well, that sounds very judgmental, and it, and it shoots him down. He's not going to be really willing to share a lo- whole lot more if he gets attacked like that, but let's pick this apart even further. What was what transpired there? What was the threat or the danger that manifested? He was afraid of something, and with good reason, because she, she delivered it. Pause for a second and let everybody think. Well, what it was was he got hurt. He got hurt because she didn't validate his experience. He was very vulnerable. He shared this thing that he was probably ashamed of. And then she she pounced on it in a judgmental way. And shut him down. That's not going to be very inviting for him to come back because he just experienced a little bit of pain. It stings when somebody makes fun of our situation or mocks us for it or um, tells us that it's not anything to be concerned about or just outright says, well, that's that's terrible or that's stupid. <laughs> um, it hurts. And that pain, that sadness that we feel because we have an expectation. Sadness is when your expectations don't get met. We had an expectation that we were going to be heard and validated in a warm, welcoming, trustworthy environment, if that doesn't happen, we we feel sadness. And that sadness is pain. It's painful. So the next time I invite him to share something vulnerable and risky, he's not going to want to do it because he's afraid of the pain. So the pain is the threat. The pain is the danger. N- nobody listening to this really wants to volunteer for pain, I, I would assume. Um, although I, do, I will say that uh, we know that Physiologically, if, if people uh, self mutilate, meaning they harm themselves by cutting uh, or doing other types of um, harmful behaviors to their, to their bodies, it can be a pain release because it releases psychological pain through the physiological act of you know, cutting or self harm. Uh, so I want to I acknowledge that. But generally, people don't just clear their throats and raise their hand and volunteer to go through pain. Uh, that's, that's not something that we, we want to dive into as human beings. We're, we're usually avoiding that, if at all possible. So I have to make some sort of effort to at least guarantee that in my room, in my office, I will help him share the deep, dark secrets. And then if Heather invalidates in some way, I will ask her where that came from because chances are really good in that couple's context, him sharing something triggered something else in her that she doesn't want to acknowledge. So instead of just simply being, being in the moment and sharing his, you know, his fear and, and validating that, that it sucks to admit whatever he admitted, uh, you know, back in the day, if she jumps to defensiveness and she, she invalidates and shuts it down, Chances are pretty good that she's protecting something of her own that she doesn't want to share, and so again, chances are really good that for a long time they've been doing this dance. I, I don't remember how long I said they've been together—six years, nine years, something like that. But for for quite a long time, they've probably been doing this um, get close, repel, get close, repel dance, where one will probably offer something, the other will um, not accept it, and maybe you know recoil, or or, or at worst they mock what was offered you know like here here's a part of me oh that's stupid I don't want to hear about that ha 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 and laugh at it Um, that's super invalidating and then it's going to be a long time before something like that is offered again so as a couple I would want them to create their own environment of validation and intimacy and I would want to force that uh, in the room so that they turn toward each other not away from each other The reason I wouldn't send Jake away to get his own individual counseling is because chances are really good that he will find his own path and it won't be on Heather's path, if that makes sense. I'm going to let that sink in. Through individual counseling, if she's not in the room, he's getting treated for whatever he's getting treated for. She's not there and he finds his own path. It will invariably create a division between the two that won't ever reconnect because what he's learning to do is process it with somebody else that being his therapist not with his wife or in this case I guess they're dating I can't I can't even remember my my vignettes anymore (laughs) so I want to I want to make very clear that if you're in a couple's counseling setting and you think you need to quote-unquote work on your stuff before coming back your therapist should tell you no Your therapist should invite you to face that stuff with your partner in the room because it creates intimacy and a bond that will often outperform anything that you had expected for yourself or for your partner anyway. And then through that closeness, what you get to practice is Being vulnerable and intimate with each other so that down the road, you can just turn to your partner and share those vulnerable, intimate things, and you don't even need therapy anymore. I mean, my job is to practice myself out of a career, hopefully, because I want to give people the ability to solve their own problems in their own environments. All right, I've got another vignette to, to drive this home. And this one might actually sound like it flies in the face of everything that I've, uh, that I've said up to this point, which is the best way to work on things is through um, couples counseling. If you're in a partnered relationship and you have struggles, bring your partner along. It will not only accelerate your healing, um, but it will provide a lot longer term healing because you have that person to, to lean on. Now, I'm going to give some caveats here, though. There are certain times when we would not recommend couples counseling for a couple. One of those is ongoing violence in the relationship. Um, that that's just you, you, it's just not advised. Um, there's a million reasons for that. You could probably imagine why. But if there's ongoing violence in the relationship, uh, we will we generally will not see you two together. Um, so there's rule number one. The second rule is if there's active substance abuse that simply prevents. The homework from being performed. we couples counseling isn't advised. We have to get the symptom under control first. Much like if uh, if there's an active symptom in in interfering with individual treatment, uh, say an anxiety disorder, um, we, we need to take care of the anxiety first, perhaps with some medication or some um, some some sort of min- mindfulness exercises before we engage in talk therapy, because the the symptom will interfere with the ability to even receive the messages. So so those two. Circumstances are are pretty much um, set and done. Nobody really is going to argue that couples should be in counseling if there's ongoing violence or ongoing active substance abuse and addiction. Now, here's another one where I would actually consider sending someone to go get individual counseling, but it would be alongside or concurrent with the couples counseling. So, this situation would pertain to deep. Intense childhood traumas. So it could be a trauma of any kind, but typically the ones in childhood are where you want to go seek your own individual processing through those instances. But don't abandon your couples treatment because what, you'll, what you're what you going to want to do is if you're the one experiencing this, um, you're going to go work on your stuff and then you're going to bring back what you've learned into that couples therapy session and share it with your mate. Share it with your partner. Share it with that couples therapist about the insights that you've received. So we had uh, Jessica Alexander on earlier in a, in a different podcast, and she shared some really detailed. Um, she wasn't detailed about the instances, but but the, the events that that she experienced were pretty were pretty detailed. So she suffered neglect and abuse and violence and um, sexual trauma as a child. If she's still struggling with that stuff, for example, in a coupled relationship, I would absolutely recommend that she she treat get that treated on the side with her couples counseling. Uh, the reason for this, uh, there are there are a few, but but the chief reason is that we don't really want to introduce to the psyche of another person some experiences that are harmful, negative, toxic, or could otherwise. Just provide some bad visuals. We don't we don't need to soil people's innocence unnecessarily. So we can say things like, "I had a bad childhood. My dad wasn't kind to me. I got bullied on the playground." Without going into the graphic details of um, being hit, what kind of objects were used, uh, what flavor of beer was consumed, uh, how the The kids on the playground used different devices. You know, like we don't have to go into that. Um, I can personally share that one of the things that, uh, you know, a detail I've never shared with anybody, I don't think, is that I got spit in the face once by a girl uh, while I was waiting for the bus in middle school. And I still to this day, uh the the flavor of like bubblegum flavor in actual bubbleish as bubblegum still kind of turns my stomach and brings me right back to that moment like it just happened yesterday and that was um 27 years ago so th- we don't we just don't need to introduce people to to psychological traumas vicariously if we can avoid it and that's why i think it's important that that the the individual goes and works on those traumas individually, and then brings them back in. And so, I, I've, I've spent some time talking about childhood trauma, but this goes for combat trauma, job trauma, anything that, that exposes somebody to, um, you know, the, the the standard walks of life that are that are customary to a certain job. Uh, you don't necessarily need to bring those home and share them with your spouse. Uh, I happen to be married to a nurse. Uh, she works in surgery. She sees some gnarly stuff come through. I don't need the imagery of uh, you know people being intubated uh, <laughs> when she comes home, and she doesn't need to describe it to me. Uh, similarly, I don't; she's not interested in the psychological world, so I don't come home and bring home stories about you know graphic detail of uh, kids who have suffered abuse and trauma. It's just not necessary, uh, and I think that it, it actually violates one of our ethics, which is the one of non-maleficence, meaning do no harm. I, I would presumably be harming somebody. Uh, by by introducing them to trauma that's not theirs to to carry or to experience or to deal with. So I would similarly extend that to the setting of of clinical work where if I'm working with a a couple and one half of that couple has experienced some gnarly battlefield uh, traumas, I'm not going to have them share those stories just to process through. I'm going to send them off to do their, their work individually, but, it, but I would inv- invite them to work only on that. Once they get through that, I don't want them working through relationship struggles or um, anxiety or substance abuse or depression or mood swings. I want those things to come back into the session and have their, their spouse support them through it. And what I'd also want them to do is bring back the stories in generic form like you, it's easy to say from, you know, spouse to spouse, Hey, I saw some terrible stuff the other day at work. Uh, I'm not going to share it with you, but just so you know, if I seem withdrawn, that's why. And then I, as the counselor can help them work on some skills to help each other through those moments. So it's perfectly acceptable if you're a cop and you show up to the scene of a crime and there's like gore everywhere or, or a, a paramedic who you know has to like stare at somebody's remains until the, the coroner shows up. That's you don't need to bring that home. You don't need to describe in great detail the images that you saw to your spouse. That's that's inappropriate. It's it's cruel. Uh it's it's really it's it's just not necessary. Um but what you can do is say, "Hey, hon, I I saw some pretty bad stuff today. Uh I'm going to need some space. I got to go to the gym. We'll talk about it in couples counseling." That way you protect the kids too because you don't want to be having adult conversations in front of children either. Um, We want to protect their innocence and whatever innocence remains in the, in the hearts of adults. We want to try to protect that as well. So um, that's, that's my one exception to the rules, but I would still want those people to engage in couples therapy in my session while simultaneously working on the individual traumas. Um, We just don't want to, we just don't need to hurt people. And, um, and the final point I want to make is that if you're, if you really have this internal drive that you, you just gotta clean up before you come to therapy, <laughs> it's it's not what we're there for. Uh, we can work on it simultaneously. But we have a, a really strong body of research that indicates that when people separate to go quote unquote solve their own stuff first and then come back to couples counseling, they never come back because they just separate. And that's really sad. And I'm not I'm not interested in uh separating people. Again, the M in my MFT license is Marriage. So we can substitute that with you know, domestic partnership or coupled for life or, you know, indwelling mate or it doesn't really matter. M's just a throwback to, you know, to yesteryear when we created the license. It's a marriage and family therapy degree with a marriage and family therapy license. But I want to keep people together. I'm not interested. It's not a DFT. I'm not. I'm not a divorce and family therapist. I want to keep people together because people live more harmoniously together. We got gobs and gobs and gobs of research that say uh, staying together is healthier. Uh, I don't even care like what people's opinion is. That it's just irrefutable. Stay together, you're healthier. You fight through stuff. You get through the other side. You stay together. Um, and if you have to divorce, uh, for a variety of reasons, that's, that's fine. I'm not going to, I'm not interested in, you know, forcing people to stay together if there's violence and one person just absolutely refuses to change. That's, that's, that's absurd. Um, but for minor stuff, like, you know, I fell out of love or, um, you know, I had a porn addiction or whatever it is and we got, we had to drift apart and it's like, there's no such thing as drifting apart. That's, that's called laziness. Um, and yes, it takes both people to be lazy. So I'm more interested in forcing intimacy and drawing people together so that they can live happier lives beyond anything they ever imagined. And the way you do that is by bringing stuff into the presence of the other person so that they can continue to help you recover through whatever it is you're struggling with. So, one final note I want to make for the clinicians in the group, and uh, it's about the idea of taking a couple in and then seeing one or the other from time to time individually. Uh, A lot of clinicians I know do this, and again, like I said in the beginning, People do different things for different reasons. As long as you have your intentionality sound, and you know why you're doing what you're doing, and you have an ethical and theoretical construct for it, you know, in other words, a lens through which you're looking at this with with some purpose and direction. Uh, I don't I don't know that I, I'm in a position to tell people how to do or not to do their their therapy. For me and for Zephyr Wellness, we have decided that we are not in a position. If, uh, say, husband walks in and wife is five minutes late, we start the session anyway with the husband, because having an individual in the room through a couple's context inherently alters the treatment plan, and it moves it from a couple to an individual, in other words, the individual who's in that room. Without the consent of the other person, we can't fundamentally alter that treatment direction, even if... In theory, we're keeping the capital R relationship as the center of our treatment. There is no such thing. Somebody picked up the phone and started this first. Somebody took the lead. Somebody's insurance is getting billed. Somebody's dipping into their own pocket to pay. And that somebody is what we would call the quote-unquote identified patient. Um, Both parties have equal and full access to those log notes. So if at some point a husband in that five minutes while we're waiting for the wife to show up discloses something that he says hey you you can't tell my wife this but and then shares something that now the therapist has to keep secret regardless of any quote-unquote no secrets policies the therapist is now stuck with juggling this lack of transparency which could potentially cause harm down the road as the husband now has stronger alignment with the therapist than the wife does simply because the wife wasn't there and how do you record that note And that's a purposeful pause there of a few seconds. I want you to think about that. How do you record that note that the wife has full 100% access to? Do you omit what the husband said? That's a real ethical bind. So for that purpose, uh, and, and something I learned a long time ago from a guy named David Kaplan, who is the ethics guru for the American Counseling Association, um, we just don't do that. If, if you're under, their, under under sorry, if you're in treatment under the auspices or the umbrella of couples counseling, we just won't see one party and not the other. Uh, I don't care how many articles are written about how it's beneficial to let someone vent without the presence of the other. I go the other direction as I, as I just spent the last 20 minutes talking about, which is we force vulnerability and intimacy. By creating an environment that's conducive enough for that person to feel safe to share their stuff so that they won't be judged, it will be welcoming and warm. And that's the clinician's job. The clinician's job is to create that environment that's conducive to that sharing. Whatever they do when they go home, that's on them. But we can't get ourselves in a position of thinking that we can referee this this uh, marriage, this uh, this coupled relationship that long predates our arrival on the scene, and will absolutely have more power than we'll ever have in it. So. We've just taken the stance at Zephyr that if you're there for couples treatment, you're there for couples treatment. We're not going to play the game of like, well, you know, my wife may or may not show up or we're in a fight, so can you see me? Nope, not at all. That's, that's an individual problem. You will have an individual treatment plan. You'll have an individual file to deal with that if that's the case. Uh, and I think I did a pretty decent job of covering the reasons uh, and, and circumstances surrounding why we would or would not do that too. So all of this, of course, is so that people can live happier, healthier, more peaceful lives. If I had my magic wand, I would wave it over the insurance industry to make them start paying for premarital counseling, preventative care, and uh, we would not have to have diagnostics in order to get reimbursed for our services. I don't think people have to be broken in order to get some treatment. Uh, you, you shouldn't have to have a mental illness in order to receive mental health care. Just like we don't have to have a dental illness to get our teeth cleaned twice or three times a year, dentistry pays for it. Pediatrics pays for it. Uh, primary care pays for it. We just we just don't have it in our field. So uh, my magic wand happened to uh, have broken a long time ago. Rolled over it with my chair. Snapped. Doesn't work anymore. But if I had it, I would wave it over the insurance industry and get preventative care paid for. And everybody would be in treatment periodically throughout the year. Maybe quarterly. I think that would probably be ideal. Every three months, just go get a go get a tune up. Pop the hood, check the belts and hoses, make sure everything's running. See you're a quart low. Let's fill you up with some coping skills. <laughs> so uh, thanks for listening. I hope this uh, jarred something in someone. Uh, those of you who are not clinicians can can go back to living your normal lives. And you don't have to pretend you're a clinician anymore for this, <laughs> for this exercise. Uh, if you have any comments questions feedbacks you sharply disagree with everything i said that's fine too um don't be mean but uh reach out to us at info at or info at nogginnotes.com and i'll be happy to you know, correspond with you or bring bring something back onto the air next time and uh share it with the with the world on behalf of the zephyr wellness team and the noggin notes family or i think i inverted those but whatever we're all a family these days i wish you all great mental wellness thanks again